As the Money Burns is an original podcast written and produced by Nikki Woodard based on historical research. This is a deep exploration into the lives of actual heirs and heiresses to some of America's most famous fortunes and what happens when the Great Depression hits. Each episode is comprised into three primary sections. Section one is a narrative story told with some creative license to enhance the emotional and psychological situations. Section two goes into the historical facts behind the scenario with occasional historiography to analyze sources and any biasness. Section three focuses on the contemporary emotional and personal connections that help make the story relevant to the current day. Now back to As the Money Burns. Welcome to Newport, part two. One has money, the other does not, while another is more than well-to-do. One has a title, but another doesn't have a clue. Can you figure out who's who? Section 1, Story Inside Bailey's Beach Clubhouse, the illustrious heirs and heiresses gather for more adolescent hormonal mingling. As the music plays, various groups gather and collide, yet off to the side and still not included sit Barbara and Doris. Doris mulls over signing the contract on the Duke estate, while Barbara fidgets with her ruby ring while staring across the room over to Prince Alexis and Louise. Getting a little miffed at being ignored, Doris remarks, Nice ring. Barbara pauses and looks at it. It is beautiful, but she doesn't get any pleasure from it. Father took Irene and me to Cartier's. He says everything needs to be fair, so I bought one for her too. Maybe you should take him to court. No, I guess it's fair. He takes care of the money. It's only a ring. Self-consciously, she pulls off the ring and stuffs it into her purse. Since her friend is too distracted, Dora shifts her own attention and goes to peruse the music selection. One day, Barbara dreams, she'll have the perfect man fawning all over her. Perfect. That's one way to describe Prince Alexis. He's that special blend of sophistication and danger. Brutal athletic strength paired with polished manners. His native Russian accent elevated with the slightest hint of a British lilt. He even has the backstory. A title stripped suddenly and dramatically during the Bolshevik Revolution. Dispossessed royalty struggling through the land of plenty. Well, maybe not completely struggling. He's been a longtime friend of the Van Allen since Eton Prep School days. The prince treats everything Van Allen like it's his very own, including Louise. Over at their table, he's engaged in telling another whopper of a tale. Louise hangs on his every word. Her two brothers humored and immune somewhat to the prince's charms. Under the table, the prince's knees taps Louise's. She slides her foot over so their ankles are touching. Above the table, she sips her soda ever so innocently hoping the cold drink tamps down the heat flushing all over her body. Tired of the rambling, Jakey interrupts. Did your family ever join the whites in Paris? Louise pulls away under the table. Jakey, please. Jakey's question is innocent, but it perturbs Alexis. He does not like being questioned on his status at all. Bored with the posturing, one of Louise's brother gets up to skim the music. Doris is so immersed in the collection, she doesn't notice until she turns around bumping into him and dropping the record. Nimbly, he catches it and smiles. Not bad taste. Flushed in embarrassment, 
Doris hurries away back to her table. Barbara is too engrossed in watching Louise and the prince to notice anything else. The prince replies, My father forbade any political involvement for our safety. Jakey shows off his knowledge. Due to the Bolshevik register? Yes, our names were in the Bolshevik register. Are you a historian of the Russian Revolution? Satisfied with Doris's selection, Louise's eldest brother pops on the record and returns to the table. Jakey pushes around his empty soda glass. His breezy, privileged mannerisms rouse the prince more. I picked up a few things over the years from my brother-in-law, Prince Obolinsky. Then would you like to share some vodka with me? Too bad it is not allowed in America. We sip cream sodas and not Brandy Alexander's. The prince's rather menacing attitude strikes Jakey as odd. That was not expected, and it now puts Jakey on alert. The silence at the table makes the music more noticeable. In one swift motion, Prince Alexis jumps up and pulls Louise onto the dance floor. Jakey asks her brother, Aren't they a little too chummy? Her brother scoff. Alexis is a major flirt. He can't help himself. Louise knows this and is immune to his charms. They dismiss Jakey's comment as being unnecessarily overprotective. The waiter brings an ice cream soda for Barbara and Doris to split. They exchange looks. Barbara huffs. Doris, you really should carry a purse. Why? People will always expect for me to pay, then overcharge. We're at Bailey's. They overcharge everyone the same. Barbara fishes out a few coins and sets them on the table. They split the soda while watching Louise and the prince dance. Section 2, History and Historiography This whole podcast journey into the lives of a select group of heirs and heiresses began with an article detailing one simmer's events in Newport. It was a little gossip piece using pseudonyms and vague, fairly happy, some salacious description of activities. A wealthy son was caught making out with a maid, an incident saving a poodle, a daughter running off with the chauffeur. The only clear detail was that reigning society queen, Alice Vanderbilt, had returned to Newport after being away for at least a season. The month of publication was August 1929, two months before the crash. I dug and dug for details. I located a few more general articles about young love and deceptions and the problems and social responsibilities with being a millionaire. Clearly, there were situations that could feel relevant and modern with a hint of a not-too-distant error. But where I struck gold is when I found that Doris Duke and Barbara Hutton had spent part of their teen years there. I already knew about both of them being a longtime fan of historical TV miniseries and having seen one on each of them. Their individual lives are fascinating. However, they are barely mentioned in the other's stories, despite the fact they were constantly compared throughout their lives from the moment of birth. Seriously, they were born barely two weeks apart in November 1912. Every triumph and faux pas was compared by the press and amongst their set. They could understand each other in a way few of us could, but their friendship was complicated. When I realized they were similar in age as my time there and how their disastrous first marriages started during the summer, I was immediately hooked into learning so much more. And if their stories were so intertwined, who else's might be too? Who were their contemporaries? What were their struggles? And did someone lose their fortune? What were the specifics when so much told was vague? 
At first, it seemed difficult. I found the older traditional fortunes and people living their separate lives, yet the Great Depression affected each of them in different ways. Or so it seems when the stories are told apart as solo journeys. Their choices didn't always make sense until I lined up the various timelines in comparison. There weren't diaries or journals to give elaborate explanations, often a newspaper date or a photograph fleshed out an untold link. Then what really got me was the overlap of so many other people. Someone like Louise, who would barely be mentioned once or twice in another story. And those were fairly dismissive. Then there were others who kept popping up everywhere. Jakey constantly appears in the background, as well as in the newspapers. Even in his own family history, he only gets a few paragraphs. I had to keep looking up new people and continuously connecting the dots and put two and two together over and over. Someone who seemed relatively unimportant overlaps multiple stories, and digging into their background opened up a whole other set of stories. Family, friends, and siblings like Louise's brothers might be periphery, but the shades and dimensions grew. It's like stitching together a quilt. People lost in time with parts of their stories submerged, overlooked, and or misdirected. Over time, I got a pretty accurate picture of a world before and after the crash, and even all the way to the end of their lives. How the course of their lives was set from an early age and the situations they found themselves in during the summer of 1929. The story of friendships turned frenemies, a love triangle with a beginning far more complicated than most ever realized, secrets uncovered, lies and scandals compounding and real-life dangers that keep popping up. Then there's the who's who making cameo appearances from time to time, including U.S. presidents and European royalty, along with several near misses that might have changed parts of history, or actually did. It is a real historic soap opera. Originally, I had intended to turn this material into a television series, and as such have been developing continuously over seven years. Hence, I have a plethora of stories and multiple retellings of certain events and situations. These stories both delight and plague me. I can't get them out of my head and move on. I have been endlessly telling my findings to anyone who will listen, and I feel compelled to tell them because each highlights so well the complications and frailties of human life. They are, for the most part, cautionary tales. I strive for accuracy and my historian sensibilities often kick into overdrive, but I also want to make things cohesive and digestible. Thus, why I decided to divide each story into several sections. A narrative section allows me to illustrate the dynamics and explore how a situation might feel or naturally evolve. And a historical section so I can always set straight any confusion and explain details that I feel give a larger emphasis to the story at hand. And because I like to be thorough, the last section allows me the freedom to point out the ongoing bleed into our modern lives. Forewarning, there's a complication. Because so many people have the same first names, I sometimes might need to use or give an alternate name or occasionally their full names to keep the storylines clear. We have barely started, and I already have about four Frank or Franklins, at least three Jimmys, and two Alices straight off the bat. And don't get me started on families who keep replicating the same names over and over. I will favor the primary long-term characters and adjust as needed. In line with this, I have opted to refer to the prince as Russian since that will be more familiar. 
In particular, he is from the former Soviet state, now independent country of Georgia, more famously known as the birthplace of Stalin. Stalin was part of overthrowing the Russian imperial dynasty, the Romanovs. However, if I did refer to the prince as Georgian, that would likely be confusing and more commonly associated with the American state from which Nanling Duke hails. I wouldn't want the prince to be the, considered the Prince of Peaches. I will do my best to make note in this section of the podcast of any liberties or changes made. I am quite a stickler for history, but in the first section, I don't want to be bogged down with heavy details or information dumps that might lead to confusion. I want to explore the emotional connections hidden behind the facts. Parental and peer rejection are not one-time events, but ongoing situations that have larger impacts than a factual sentence can convey. I could neatly summarize their individual stories, and we'd miss half the story. The part that shows that every choice a person makes is based on the world around them, and hindsight is 2020. but even then, there are butterfly effects happening we didn't realize had influence or were connected until years, even decades later. Our primary heirs and heiresses, Barbara, Doris, and Jakey, and Louise are only 16 to 19 years old, all in the prime of youth, missing a parent, and waiting for their inheritances. During the summer of 1929, they were all present in Newport with the hopes and dreams of what will lie ahead. They see bright futures on the horizon, and why shouldn't they? All they need to focus on is making a good marriage, and all will be good. If only life was so simple. We have lots of layers to uncover, so let's have fun on this journey. There's so much to play with, and we have only just begun. Section 3, Contemporary and Personal Relevance Beautiful and brimming with prestige, Newport is still a summer hotspot. Unlike the past, there are now a few specialty hotels and bed and breakfasts in the area catering to tourists and wedding parties. I'm not sure what the Airbnb options are, but despite all of that, just like back in the days of our heirs and heiresses, the best parts remain primarily private access. Thus, Newport continues to have an appeal within the money set. Those picturesque seaside cottages and the bubbling dynamics of young love seem like the perfect fodder for a Taylor Swift song. Actually, the Taylor Swift connection is not a one-off Kevin Bacon thing. It's direct. As probably many Swifties already know, Taylor was spotted during the throes of young love while dating Connor Kennedy in Cape Cod. After their breakup, she went from Cape Cod to another Kennedy-affiliated spot, Newport, where Jackie Bouvier Kennedy Onassis had spent her youth and came out as a debutante. In 2013, Taylor bought a seaside Newport mansion and thus has vacationed in the sun there several times with her squad, even throwing Fourth of July parties. This won't be Taylor's only connection to the story, but I'll save that for later. And Tay-Tay isn't the only person buying Newport property. Those cliffside mansions, ahem, cottages, have had more recent famous fortunes, including Oracle's Larry Ellison, Judge Judy, and Jay Leno. What can I say? Some things just seem eternal. Next, when we return to As the Money Burns... Our love triangle is more like a pyramid with plenty of hearts in play. All this talk of royalty, dynasties, and pyramids evokes certain imagery from a far distant past that came back into the present in a most spectacular way. Until then. Credits. 
As the Money Burns is an original podcast written and produced by Nikki Woodard based on historical research. Archival music has been provided by Past Perfect Vintage Music. Check out their website at www.pastperfect.com. Interested in following more about As the Money Burns? You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and the website all under As the Money Burns. <laughs>